Welcome to Ethics in Action, brought to you by the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Dive into crucial conversations with academics and policymakers as we explore the crossroads of ethics and public affairs. Good morning. This is the Ethics in Action podcast, co-hosted by my esteemed colleague, the historian Vlado Petrovich, and myself, Mir Zakovich from UMass Boston. Good morning, gentlemen. And Vlado, I will uh, let you introduce our guest today. Thank you so much. So it's a huge pleasure to say hello and to greet our esteemed guest, Ambassador and Professor Vesko Garcevich. I will just introduce him shortly and pass the floor to him as soon as possible. Vesko Garcevich studied political science in Belgrade at the end of the 80s, and then he entered the diplomatic career of back then collapsing uh, Yugoslavia. And uh, he He's a person of rich diplomatic experience, both in Yugoslavia and after its disappearance in Montenegro. We will definitely attach uh, the reference to his webpage to this podcast because it will take too long to uh, just give a list of his diplomatic duties. But he knows diplomatic service from within uh, extremely well because he started as a really young career diplomat and he held influential and important positions in the Montenegrin Ministry for Foreign Affairs, such as heading its political department, which, as we all know, is the heart of um, of such an institution, but also being an assistant to the secretary in regard to multilateral relations. Uh, Ambassador Garcovic was also representing Montenegro, both in Brussels and in Vienna, uh, not only being ambassador to Austria and Belgium, but also representing it in multilateral bodies such as Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, and probably most importantly for this conversation in NATO. Ambassador Garcevich was also crucial in the process of accession of Montenegro to NATO, and I hope we will get a chance to speak about this today as well. However, the topic of this podcast and the topic of this get-together is certainly war in Ukraine, so I would like to jump into this topic immediately and to ask Vesco, if he can say a word or two about what does it actually mean for global affairs, Russian invasion to Ukraine, how did it change diplomatic interaction and landscape? Where is Russia on this new diplomatic chessboard? How does one deal with it at this point? Uh, thank you, Vlado. Uh, thank you for for kind introduction. Uh, always, this is like a how to say you always have a problem to uh, uh, recognize yourself when somebody like uh, speaks uh, so nice about about you. Um, indeed, uh, uh, I will say nothing new if I begin with the uh, phrases that um, the war in Ukraine is not just European war; it's like a, a global earthquake, and that makes uh, that war. Uh, important. Um, it is important for a number of reasons. One of them is that includes one of three or four uh, superpowers in this uh, in, uh, on this planet, and one that possesses um, uh, more nuclear weapons than any other uh, superpower. Uh, but uh, let us begin with the first. Um, uh, let us begin first with the European context, and we can then expand discussion a little bit more. First of all, I would say that. Uh, uh, and no doubt it's a turning point uh, for European security architecture. Uh, and we, at this point, we don't know what may uh, be the end game of this, of this um, uh, war, but we may see some trends uh, and uh, pose questions and then even discuss them later on a little bit further. Uh, first of all, uh, NATO or Russia relations, uh, from that perspective, I would say, uh, you know, that uh, uh, even yesterday uh, during the 9th May parade, um, President Putin referred to that and accusing NATO for provoking this war. I can like, I elaborate it a little bit more later on, but uh, what I can say at this point that this uh, invasion puts in question founding mutual relations between and cooperation and security between NATO and uh, uh, Russian Federation, which was signed in 1997. And uh, um, 
to a great, a great extent respected by both sides, even after uh, the first war in Ukraine in 2014. I would say this, this um, uh, founding act, this document, which is a cornerstone of relations between Russia and NATO is now under question, if not actually obsolete. Uh, then um, uh, uh, we, can, we are witnessing a, a significant shift uh, uh, in longstanding policy of uh, European, European Union member states, whether they do that reluctantly, like in German case, or uh, they actually become more uh, vocal in uh, uh, asking other European members to, to take a, like a firm stand on Russia. This is another question. But when it comes to Germany, you know, uh, you know definitely this war uh, caused several things to happen. It has increased uh, military spending over 2%. More importantly, uh, German parliament has decided to supply the Ukrainian government with anti-tank and anti-aircraft missile systems uh, and anti-aircraft tanks, as I said, so that for the first time, uh, Germany is ready to send weapons um, to the country at war. Minister of Foreign Affairs of Germany, interesting, Greens are very, how to say, um, pushy in this case, against Russia and Minister of Foreign Affairs of Germany uh, uh, is this uh, today is visiting Ukraine to uh, uh, demonstrate uh, her personal and their support to Germany. You know very well that a German president was not allowed to uh, visit Kiev, but um, uh, as you see, uh, Representative Green, the Greens is allowed um, and welcome by Ukrainians. So um, then uh, I think that most European Union member states will increase defense spending, which also will cause uh, uh, European Union members to rethink um, a so-called European Union security uh, paradigm. Uh, I would say that France will use this opportunity to reinvigorate their idea of strategic autonomy when it comes to security, uh, a European Union strategic autonomy. Um, definitely, uh, US is something, US will support it as long as uh, that idea corresponds to the role of NATO in the continent. Um, it will be very interesting um, to see what's going to happen as a result of it. What uh, one key I can say also is that members, European Union members, at least for time being, stand more united than many expected. Uh, with all due respect, what was happening, what happened couple uh, last week, or I guess last week, when Hungary blocked uh, the, the decision on uh, um, energy decision, in, I would say uh, for time being, uh, uh, Moscow, uh, for time being, European Union demonstrated unity that Moscow didn't expect to happen. Um, to conclude with this European context, I would say that, again, uh, we can discuss it uh, at length later on, that with the Finland and Sweden in NATO, uh, which uh, is likely to happen, at least according to my information from NATO, both countries are very serious about it, particularly Finland, you will be surprised. Uh, so, and um, um, they expect formal application uh, by the end of this month. So with this uh, happening, it's not just that, uh, uh, this um, this uh, is not only uh, is this something that uh, uh, you Russia uh, actually is Russia uh, provoked. Um, it is also a move that uh, not, uh, how to say uh, comes as a result of um, uh, Russia's uh, invasion of, of on Ukraine of Ukraine, and then uh, we. Two of them in NATO, hypothetically, and with Austria, Ireland, and Switzerland imposing sanctions against Russia and siding by uh, like a, uh, um, siding by European Union um, common foreign and security policy in this regard, we may pose a question whether uh, neutrality as such. Uh, uh, exist anymore, not only on European continent. There are just two more countries which are uh, uh, formally recognized as neutral. If we like uh, outside of Europe, it is Costa Rica and Turkmenistan. Other countries like Serbia are self-proclaimed neutral countries. Their, their neutrality has not been recognized 
by international community. So neutrality will be, concept of neutrality will be fundamentally changed. And one can pose a question, can countries be neutral in the case of invasion of this kind? So if you want to see from a more global perspective, um, one can say this reconfirmed, reconfirmed that inability of UN Security Council to make decisions uh, in critical situations like this one, which uh, one, once again, calls for an action, a remodeling of the UN, if possible. Um, for the other perspective, uh, if we like uh, put China in, we can uh, also see that um, uh, this action has I will at least, uh, you know, uh, two layers or can, can be two prong um, uh, consequence. One of them is that it's gonna, uh, Russia is, uh, is gonna weaken Russia's military and economic capabilities, which will open door for China to play a more important role in Russia. Some people, experts say that Russia will become dependent on China, on China after this. And also for China, this is a, like a, a lesson uh, case study that can they, that they will study carefully if they plan to do something with Taiwan. So the reaction of the West, in, uh, sanctions uh, and severity of sanctions is something that they need to take into account. I will stop like a hopefully uh, uh, for the first, first intervention is too too many uh, too many uh, topics touched upon. Not at all. It's a very complex matter, of course. So if I'm allowed with a follow-up question, this time to Professor Garcevich and not to Ambassador Garcevich, because Professor Garcevich, and it's the same person, teaches international relations uh, at the Frederick Perdi School for Global Studies of Boston University. And the question is the following. So what do you say to your students when you teach them diplomatic practice? How, how would they deal with Russia at this point? How does the diplomacy get back in the play when there are wartime circumstances. How to deal with a state which is verging a status of pariah state, but also has no clear capability of, of scary proportions? What is a sensible way to approach the problem? Uh, a difficult question, difficult question for scholars and more difficult for practitioners, I would say. Um, uh, what we are now living through is, can be described as um, escalation paradox. Escalation paradox refers to how best should be dealing with the crisis uh, provoked by Russia. Uh, you cannot stand still and accept uh, an invasion, invasion or, of a sovereign nation. So it goes against uh, uh, international legal norms. And in the European context, but, uh, it goes against, you know, sovereign recognition of, uh, of, 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 of states. And the EOSC principle, uh, Helsinki, uh, Helsinki chapter, and so on and so forth. So you cannot, um, you cannot um, uh, accept this, but you have to uh, work carefully not to escalate crisis. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, we know all that Russia possesses like a, uh, nuclear weapons, and at certain uh, and several times they have warned uh, the West um, that they may they might be using uh, in the future they might be using uh, nuclear weapons in the war in ukraine so it is something that uh, the west doesn't want to happen so uh, you have to be involved you have to support ukraine as much as um, as you can but um, you should think twice before doing something that may uh, how to say escalate and bring us to the point of no return uh, that said, it's difficult to deal with a country that is portrayed as a pariah state, um, even if it is a smaller one, like um, let's look at the cases like Iran or North Korea. Um, you need states, uh, it is what we teach students, you need states to participate in, the, in an international system. Uh, by being in, by being uh, actors of the system, you have a good leverage to influence them and, and to uh, you know um, and to be engaged with them uh, through like a, a institutional channels channels that were have been created by other states. Um, therefore, um, I don't think that the idea um, uh, at one point promoted by some uh, practitioners to kick Russia out from the UN Security Council would be a good one. Um, you know uh, the UN. Uh, 
is a global organization only if all the global uh, powers and are in. Um, we know well what happened with the League of Nations. So if you don't, if you if you want, you know, you don't want this to repeat to avoid this scenario, you have to keep it uh, in. Um, uh, you know, um, no, regardless of uh, inefficiency of UN Security Council uh, that I mentioned just like a moment ago. But you can then explore other options uh, to make sure that uh, uh, you are firm, tough on Russia, like the one uh, which is the suspension of Russia's membership to um, a UN Human, uh, Human Rights Council. So this is really um, like a tiny line that you, or like a, like a space, tiny space that you have to walk through, um, not to deteriorate situation further, but also to appear firm and to take uh, like a firm measures against uh, against uh, against country like Russia. Um, that said, uh, I cannot honestly imagine a serious uh, uh, comprehensive negotiations to take place anytime soon. I don't see this happening um, in the theater, and I don't see two sides willing to be involved in negotiation. Um, for that, also theory may give you, or the theory and practice may give you a number of reasons why. I think one of them is that both sides at this point believe that uh, status quo, which means the war, is still uh, uh, useful to maintain because they expect that uh, through war they may uh, 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 may make some uh, further gains, which will then uh, improve their bargaining power once they sit at the table. So war is for both sides still an option, and they will go for time for some time um, and keep that option going on. Um, uh, then it comes to. Um, Russia also and the West, I would, in my view, it's difficult to imagine that uh, with Putin as a president, the West, after everything that has happened, West uh, will be willing to negotiate. Uh, you will find some, uh, some, uh, some countries uh, willing to keep contact with, uh, with the Russia, with Putin's Russia, but uh, even Germany, uh, for example, uh, would have a problem to accept Putin as a, like a legitimate representative uh, uh, to negotiate with, uh, given what has happened so far and what may happen in the future. So um, I would say that Russia will remain cornered and will turn to um, more to China uh, and uh, will try to reach out to India and the so-called uh, countries from uh, the global south um, to uh to seek their support and not to feel how to say pariah not to feel um not to feel uh secondary in global order but it would be difficult to regain confidence of the west um and um, not just countries of the west countries that support the western world or the west or the west i think it's time to pass the floor to our gracious host near Thank you. Vesco, if I could follow up on that last point. So uh, Russia turning to uh, China, in theory at least, if Russia does increasingly turn to China, there's a sort of uh, pincer movement potential there of a um, influence on energy market and an influence on uh, uh, cash markets. Uh, so the sort of the main supplier of loans and the main supplier of energy could uh, uh, bond uh, and really exert some kind of uh, influence. How much in practice, Gordon, and that speaks to the point of, you know, uh, the kind of dependence that Europe has created for itself, which is pretty much a one directional dependence rather than a two directional uh, dependence. But uh, how much coordination do you think there really is? How much of an interest does China have to uh, have close coordination with Russia? Is it the same level, a different level? Oh, no. Uh... I would say that Russia has no many options at the table right now. Uh, I, I, I'm, I would say I'm pretty much aware of that. I think that they are aware of uh, uh, 
uh, they're pretty much sure that, that they are aware of um, potential challenges and problems down the road uh, if they become uh, overly dependent on, for example, uh, Chinese uh, uh, loans or cash um, and economic influence. Um, but uh, um, I'm not sure that they have many options right now. So this is not what they want, maybe, but this is what they how to say, need to survive uh, in a given situation. So uh, it is, um, you know, since 2014 and the uh, imposition of the first set of sanctions against Russia, Russia turned to China and they also called it like a pivot, a pivot to, to the East uh, um, and then trying to actually balance um, the lack of cooperation with the West, with the more cooperation uh, with China. China also has interest uh, through Russia, it may become, become again, to reach out to the Arctic and become involved in a, an important, um, um, let's call it dialogue right now, or uh, consideration uh, or power distribution when it comes to that part of the globe, which is getting uh, more and more importance in global affairs. So I see also interest from Chinese perspective. Um, when it comes to the war itself, I don't think as long as I don't think that, uh, you know, I think that China's uh, China's interests are more complex, um, while at the first glance, um, you know, Russia's intervention or Russia's intervention with, with the West or um, keeping West busy, let's say so, in Europe may serve uh, Chinese interests uh, to some extent. Uh, the least thing that China wants is the further escalation of that of that of this war and the invasion. Uh, it is what Chinese. I don't know whether you followed Chinese Prime Minister mentioned yesterday that they would like uh, they would like to see this war contained and they want to see this war um, escalate further. Um, I'm not sure that they uh, they are happy how the war is going on so far, and I'm sure that they are surprised with. Um, inability and effectiveness, call it as you like, dysfunctionality of uh, uh, Russia's uh, military machine uh, in, uh, in Ukraine. So, uh, but from the strategic point of view, I think it's an interesting situation. And um, as Churchill said, uh, um, uh, don't waste any crisis. I would think that uh, any crisis, at least from the perspective, I'm not just like a um, uh, in realist perspective, but also from practitioners' perspectives, um, any crisis like this one is redistribution of power, redistribution of power of global or the global level in this case. So they may believe that they will, you know, come out from this from this uh, from this uh, uh, crisis stronger. I would say Russia also calculated that it uh, would come out from this crisis stronger. So uh, for sure, they would, uh, in my view, they would uh, end up being weaker, uh, uh, but uh, some uh, weaker. And uh, I would say that, uh, that, that China would then uh, use this uh, for their own purposes. Let's see, but many, 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 uh, how to say, options are still open and maybe it's too early to, uh, to make a call. Uh, in this game, it's uh, you know uh, uh, time will uh, will teach us, but I see this trend uh, right so, now. Vasco, let me just ask you a follow-up question to that <clears throat> specific last point. So a war is started by a country obsessed with the perception of its own strength uh, to project some more strength. It turns out the opposite. It turns out the other way around. Right, it's beginning to project uh, weakness and dysfunction uh, rather than uh, strength. Abstracting for a moment from the Chinese interest in all of this, uh, does that seem to you like a particularly explosive situation as this uh, uh, grinds down? So there's Russia struggling to have you know, a considerable achievement and the war started because it felt humiliated in the first place. Uh, or at least wanted to say that it felt humiliated in the first place by uh, being pushed uh, um, out of the center of the stage, uh, not being able to make it back to the center of the stage. Does this increase the uh, chances of uh, some kind of 
spectacular use of either chemical nuclear weapons or some sort of Hail Mary move that would uh, reassert Russian strength or perception of strength? Uh, yeah, a good point. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, I would say, you know, uh, perception of strength is a result of number of uh, number of um, uh, factors, uh, even personal ones. It is how people who are close to Putin and President Putin himself see uh, Russia and Russia's Russia's strength. Uh, one have one have to admit that in the last several years in Syria or in other places like Libya or um, in Chad and Central African Republic, uh, Russia uh, was able to demonstrate um, effectiveness and functionality when it comes to their inter limited interventions. And I highlight the limited interventions. They Russia relied on um, you know. Uh, well-trained and uh, small group, uh, small units, uh, well-trained uh, units uh, who, uh, and also proxies on the ground who, um, you know, uh, did um, um, actually um, made things look like a really uh, perfect from Russia's perspective and uh, allowed them to make some gains in that uh, in those parts of the world. But Ukraine is a different case, um, and then. There are a number of factors now, um, at least uh, that have been floating in the air. As we, uh, uh, some speak about, like a, a corruption of enormous proportions, billions and billions of dollars, which were put in pockets of uh, a military elite in Russia. And we, uh, but the, those that were funneled into uh, 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 preparation for this um, for this intervention for this invasion. So some others uh, will tell you that um, actually uh, it was just a bubble that they presented themselves better than they are. And actually they are paying a price for that. I would also be cautious, cautious when it comes to Russia. Uh, the, the history teaches us um, different things. Russia, for example, were not, was not able to win the war against Japan or had a problem uh, with the uh, um, Finland, but um, um, again, uh, in several occasions, uh, wars didn't start well for Russia, but they turned out to become Russia's big victories uh, in their history. When it comes to the World War II, I have to just remind um, uh, all of us that the, uh, the, how to say, the largest defeat in Russian history was in Kiev. Um, but, but then the largest victory in their history was also just a year after in Stalingrad during the World War II. So Russia would try to grind down, uh, this is what they tried, I'm not sure that whether they will succeed, I will try to uh, you know, prolong the war, believing that um, uh, Ukrainians' forces will get exhausted uh, sooner than Russia's forces. Uh, whether they will use uh, chemical weapons, or uh, nuke, uh, nukes in this war, uh, that depends very much on uh, their perception. And people say, at least people say that if Patrushev is to decide uh, who is very influential, if not the most influential right now uh, in um, the closest circle around, uh, around uh, President Putin, then uh, we could not exclude this happening. Uh, happen, which means that um, they may like a, they don't need to use weapons uh, like a nukes. Uh, they may just target uh, one of nuclear uh, nuclear power plants in in Ukraine and then cause a, a disaster of great proportion. Uh, and it, then it is difficult to uh, blame Russia for doing that for having done it. They would always, you know, find like a. Um, argument that um, to prove that they've not been to prove their innocence um, uh, in that in that case, or they may also stage an attack uh, using chemical weapons uh, and then blame I don't know other sides for doing that, like in the war in uh, Syria. So I would I would say that these options are still at the table, uh, but um, what to say? Uh, I don't want to sound pessimistic. Uh, I just want to believe that we would not reach that point. 
you know, Mr. Garchevich is always concerning when you hear a diplomat who wants to believe in something, right? Because, I mean, you are so well accustomed in dealing with realities rather than uh, visual yeah. things. I would uh, just, uh, sorry for interrupting you, Vlado, but um, uh, uh, Russia has mentioned several times that they would like uh, annex Crimea. I remember when I was in NATO at the time before that happened, um, and I was, uh, I had discussions, long discussions with my Swedish friend. Uh, trying to convince her to take what Russia saying, what was, was Russia saying at the time, to take it seriously, it happened. Then they, um, you know, also warned the West that they would invade Ukraine, and they did it. Now um, I would take, I would, I would take uh, what they are saying seriously. No, absolutely. I mean, these are exceptional times. Just yesterday, I had this conversation about strategic and tactical nuclear missiles and so on, and my interlocutor was trying to uh, calm the situation, and he said the following. Well, ultimately, the winds are for the most part blowing eastwards from Ukraine, therefore it doesn't make much sense uh, for Russians to, to use tactical nuclear weapons. And I thought to myself, I never believed that I'm going to study where the winds blow that this is going to be something which is supposed to make me feel good or or, or, or because I'm thinking, you know, and this is actually, again, a question for you. 20 years before, let's say, when partnership for peace was the word and when the idea that you just mentioned that slowly integrating uh, whatever remained of Soviet Union into wider metrics of international relations would definitely create preconditions for further uh, integration and for multilateralism and for public diplomacy and whatnot. Um, if you try to remember back then, would you ever expect that the events would go this way? Um, or did it seem completely differently? I mentioned this for two reasons. One, that Putin mentions NATO often. So not only, of course, there is a latent justification that NATO broke its promise from 1990 to Gorbachev and so on and uh, expanded eastwards, but also Putin mentioned that uh, he himself approached Clinton at a certain point and asked him, whether he ever sees uh, Russia in NATO, and uh, Clinton told him no way. So this is how Putin re-narrates the story. Now, we of course know that these things happen in much more complex ways. So the question for you is whether you anticipated this development in any way, and can you anticipate some alternative development? Um, is it still possible that Russia will become a credible interlocutor, which will be integrated in some sort of global diplomatic exchange? The East and the West are after all, symbolical concepts, right? And uh, countries change their outlook dramatically, such as your native country, for instance. So uh, what does the future hold for us, Vesco? Uh, it's, a, it's a simple question, uh, isn't it? Let me, let me begin with the, your last question, whether I can imagine Russia being integrated in the glo in global affairs. Yes, I can, because there is no other option but that option. At the end of the day, uh, after all the wars that we have had so far in the history of humankind, uh, we have those countries integrated in this another way in global system. There is no such a thing uh, uh, putting a country, uh, particularly as big as Russia, um, on hold or uh, in a status, a secondary status in global affairs or uh, uh, labeling is a pariah state for for like a, for the for the centuries. I don't think so. I would I would say I also don't think that uh, uh, if West believes that Russia will transform into like a liberal type of democracy and join liberal order, then they are on a wrong foot because I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, this That can be like a maybe uh, a wrong uh, a perception or wrong approach to Russia. Uh, more realistic approach is needed. That said, I'm not supportive to Putin and what he's, he's been doing. So, um, and uh, between these, uh, uh, how to say, poles, uh, extremes. Um, we have to find something which can be like a mid-ground, uh, and this is something that can work relatively, uh, how to say, can work well on both sides. Uh, now we are on a, on a very, how to say, in difficult situation, a difficult phase, because nobody sees middle ground in Russia, because uh, uh, things are pushed to the extreme uh, and pushed on the purpose of uh, 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 I think President Putin um, plays on that card uh, because that card keeps him uh, in power. Changing that card will change dynamics in, the, in in Russia and then will bring somebody else to power. But uh, let's see. Now, but I will not even uh, close the door for some, let's say, like, um, I don't know how to call it, 
some changes from within if things don't go well in the future. When it comes to Russia's uh, NATO's relations, uh, I know what you uh, refer to as a broken promise. That's also, at least from my perspective, I have to say, um, a questionable argument. I will, it is easy to judge um, uh, 30 years after from our perspective and to say that things happen like this and this and that. Uh, we had to be in shoes of those people who were negotiating the unification of Germany. Lately, I, 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 um, I read an article, I read an interview um, uh, in um, uh, interview with the former senior ranking, uh, former senior ranking uh, Russia's um, uh, diplomat who was involved uh, to great extent in a negotiation over uh, unification of Germany. He himself uh, admitted that he was not um, present during like, attended meetings between uh, uh, President Bush and Gorbachev and cannot confirm whether Bush promised um, um, something um, um, that we now describe as a, um, you know, uh, NATO's promise not to expand to the East. He said uh, that even if that promise uh, had been made at the time, uh, nobody was thinking about enlargement. Enlargement was not in focus. That was not the topic of the discussion. That was a, uh, how to say, um, marginal issue. They were focused on, uh, on, on unification of Germany and also for uh, Russia's <clears throat> interest at that time, um, was of uh, particularly important to get uh, like an open door for um, Western foreign direct investments in Russia and to reinvigorate their economy. And therefore, they believed at the time that they struck, a, they, they brokered a good deal. Uh, um, things had changed with uh, President Clinton, but um, which then promoted the uh, expansion of NATO uh, to the East. But uh, if we look at history just briefly, uh, and you can check this out easily, then interesting enough that, for example, NATO-Russia's Funding Act was uh, made in 1997. And one who was in charge of negotiating that act from Russia's side was Primakov, who was considered at the time uh, a, a one of like a, let's say hard who was hardliner when it comes to uh, relations with with the NATO and with the West, uh, and that act was signed in 1997, as I said, and was also considered as a success uh, for Russia because act didn't allow uh, NATO to deploy troops uh, station permanently troops in new member states in the East and didn't allow NATO to deploy nuclear capabilities uh, in the eastern uh, flank of NATO, which NATO uh, and both sides actually respected. Um, um, just to give you another example, that um, uh, NATO-Russia Council was uh, created in 2002 in Rome at the moment when uh, NATO invited a bunch of countries to join NATO. If the NATO in, uh, uh, enlargement was a problem, and then Russia uh, had enough uh, uh, chances uh, to react and to make it clear that it, opposed, uh, it opposes that. Um, Putin was in president 2002. In fact, the first and the second round of enlargement of NATO was followed by unprecedented cooperation between NATO and Russia. Uh, and therefore that uh, puts poses a big question mark over the argument that NATO provoked Russia. Look at the map of and uh, analyze enlargement, uh, waves of enlargement, and you will uh, figure out that since 2004, when um, uh, countries um, like uh, uh, Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, um, uh, uh, and Romania joined NATO, since 2004, NATO didn't expand to the east. Um, it um, uh, actually, uh, Croatia joined NATO, Montenegro joined NATO, Albania joined NATO, and North Macedonia joined NATO. None of these countries are from Russia's um, immediate neighborhood. Yet some of these countries are uh, religion-wise orthodox, and uh, Montenegro, for instance, harbored quintessential pro-Russian sentiment through its history, culture, poetry, uh, and so on. So the question for you as a person also interested in the role of culture when it comes to diplomacy, 
uh, how did it play out in the case of Montenegro? Was this a transition from the East to the West? Is it reversible? Is it not reversible? Was it, how was it, to put it short? Culture is a very strong uh, soft power tool, not just culture, but in your case, it's religion. You mentioned religion. And then this uh, a soft power uh, tool can be translated in, let's say, call it sharp power, to use modern term. Um, if we like uh, analyze, examine the role of churches, of Orthodox churches in Orthodox world, particularly Russia's Orthodox Church and Serbian Orthodox Church uh, in uh, in the context of Montenegro and Serbia or, or the Balkans. So um, uh, definitely it is very powerful and it plays a role. People, as you know well, uh, in all parts of the world, in Eastern Europe, particularly among Orthodox population in Eastern uh, Eastern Europe, they see Russia as guardian of their interests and their cultural identity, and often they uh, think that without uh, without that Russia is needed um, to balance the power of the West. Um, um, they also respect. Um, how to say powerful leaders because they believe that power of freedom substitute um, independent and powerful institutions, independent powerful institutions based on law and democratic standards. So a um, number of factors are in there and um, uh, these factors play an important role. Uh, when Montenegro was about to join NATO, um, uh, indeed Russia was using a cultural, a historic, and religious uh, arguments um, to uh, challenge intention of uh, the government and Montenegro to join NATO. Uh, they presented um, NATO and European Union uh, lifestyle values, value orientation, better said, value orientation is something strange and inconsistent with Orthodox value orientation and Orthodox lifestyle, something that will cause uh, identity change to the level that we can, we, in the in 20 or 30 years from now, we won't be recognizable as nations. We would become one of them. Uh, we would become um, um, Catholics in terms of like, we would uh, do this. Then argument of Greece is was very powerful argument in our hands, but um, when it, this is powerful argument when it comes to when it comes to the uh, orthodoxy, but it's not when it comes to like a broader pan-Slavism, because uh, uh, Greece is not a Slavic country, and then uh, uh, and this pan-Slavism um, and Russian world extended in Russian world because Russian world in like a narrow sense refers to Russia's uh, Russians living in the former Soviet Republic, uh, but Russian world in a broader sense um, uh, also covers. Uh, uh, Slavs, Orthodox Slavs, um, it's, uh, it, it is not surprising that, for example, um, a Russian world center is in Banja Luka uh, or in Sofia or in Belgrade, but not in, for example, in Athens. Uh, uh, therefore, um, therefore, that plays a very important role, powerful role. You know, soft power is sometimes more powerful uh, than, than uh, hard power. If I can illustrate it with a joke, there was one popular in Montenegro at times, which was, okay, we are a small nation, but us plus Russians equals 300 million. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, history of Montenegro, as you know, and history of many countries, including your one, uh, uh, Serbia, actually, uh, not history, uh, I have to be precise here, memory uh, is full of myths. Uh, and um, people um, have a mythical understanding of Russia's a role uh, in our history. Um, we attribute, um, uh, you know, uh, to Russia things that didn't happen in history and nobody cares. They don't look at historic books to find out whether, uh, whether what they believe in really happened or not. Um, it is irrelevant. It, uh, what is relevant is um, uh, deeply rooted uh, uh, mindset, understanding of uh, Russia's um, you know, role uh, in Montenegrin, for example, history. Uh, and uh, this is not simply, this is not true. But, it can, changed, but it can be changed as, as recent history showed uh, up. As, as, I, as I said, you know, every history, every, uh, you know, memory uh, is a social construct. 
and every social construct can be uh, deconstructed. Uh, um, and hopefully this is gonna happen. Oh, finally, something optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me ask the two of you uh, in uh, in your hats as uh, scholars and scholars of uh, uh, history. Uh, apropos uh, historical framing, um, so we know that the Russians uh, uh, framed this as a kind of. Uh, um, refighting of World War II and as uh, uh, cleansing uh, Ukraine of Nazis and there are these uh, uh, feverish uh, and um, very weird narratives. But uh, as one uh, Dutch historian, I think, uh, who I like, uh, Martin van Krivelid uh, uh, once put it, wars tend to be very imitative uh, activities, one of the most imitative activities that we have. And so uh, from here, from the U.S., part of the framing that you've been hearing in the last couple of weeks is uh, that the uh, American assistance um, and uh, sending of weapons is framed in the same terms that it was in World War II. So there's the arsenal of democracy just made a, a comeback, uh, Roosevelt's famous uh, uh, term. And I think even the... Um, funding bill that uh, uh, President Biden uh, was signing yesterday either was framed or uh, uh, described as a new uh, land lease uh, bill, which was again one of the uh, terms used to send assistance to Great Britain before the United States uh, joined the war. I guess my question to both of you, to Vesco, uh, would be if you, uh, if you were advising uh, Biden would you advise that this be framed in World War II uh, terminology? That seems to be walking a bit of a dangerous line. Who would be the first? Uh, Lado, would you be the first? Ambassadors first. Okay, so first I will make a comment um, uh, when it comes to wars, um, uh, and I agree with you, Nir. Um, uh, every war, uh, Every war is um, actually presented as 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 the just war, and it's always the question is um, whether it is a just war or a just or a just war, which means whether we have another war or we have a war that we do and make uh, in the name of justice. Um, uh, both sides uh, here um, present this war, ongoing war, as uh, as just war. Um, uh, but at least in this case, it's clear, clearer than in many other cases, um, who invader is and who the victim, uh, who the victim is. When it comes to narratives, uh, if I'm the one to uh, advise President Biden, I would I would advise them to um, walk out from that trap because uh, uh, there are other arguments that uh, uh, US can use and they're very powerful argument like invasion of a, uh, on a sovereign or of a sovereign state or the violation of uh, international legal norms um, or you know um, you know that uh, Ukraine did uh, its best to denuclearize itself uh, um, uh, in 1990, in the early 90s, and that uh, was invaded by a country that guaranteed its sovereignty and territorial integrity, one of these countries that um, uh, served as guarantors of, uh, of its sovereignty and territorial integrity invaded it. Uh, all these arguments can be used, uh, and they are very powerful, and can be used against Russia. I would not refer to um to to world war ii because context is different and then also it is narrative used by russia it is how like a, you are playing according to russia's music uh uh you don't need to do that i couldn't agree more and um the thing is it's very dangerous set of analogies uh, i think it was hegel who said once that history teaches us only one thing which is that we can't learn much from history and of course, we can learn a lot from history. I learn about it every day. But many people learn wrong things. They fight the old wars. It's also an old analogy of generals who are always fighting their last war when they were young majors or captains. Um, that's, that, that's never an advisable course of action. Uh, Putin, of course, plays the same. Rearmament of Germany plays immensely into his hands. So, And he is, in a sense, I think, still one step ahead in this part of the game. 
So he's losing the war, uh, but uh, on the level of narrative and painting it as the continuation of the Second World War to other means, he is ahead of the game and playing his game would be uh, downright naive, I think. Um, as you well know, I came back from Lviv the other week, and I hope we'll get the chance to talk about it in another episode of this podcast too. Uh, but what I saw at this point is that the facts are talking for themselves. The Ukrainians do not have to invent a lot for uh, for the war propaganda purposes. It's pretty much enough to portray what's happening. So to pepper it with further analogies is just obfuscating the fact of the matter, which is as clear as it can be. It's as clear as it was in Spain in the interwar period. I mean, there is absolutely no doubt about what is happening. So there was a, an invasion and uh, there was a breach of, uh, of borders. There are uh, the aggression is something which is obvious and it needs not to be debated. So that's powerful enough to, I think, every uh, every impartial observer. Excellent. Uh, Vesco, I know we need to uh, let you go, but I wanted to say that this was deeply instructive and I learned a lot from you. So thank you for joining us and I hope you'll agree to join us again. I will, I will join you. I will join you. Thank you, first of all, for inviting me. Thank you for giving a chance to share my like, uh, thoughts about this. I know that these days, uh, this is a very, this is a very topical issue, and that these days, um, you know, people are ready, willing to um, to speak about Ukraine. We have many uh, experts, but we also have people who just want to speak about that. Um, I think that the knowledge of those living in the Eastern Europe is somehow neglected. Uh, and even if I look around and read uh, news uh, uh, here in the US, then I see more Americans speak about uh, uh, Russia and Eastern Europe than Eastern Europeans. I think that uh, if I were American right now, I would try to listen to um, more to listen to people from that part of the world because they can read between lines uh, and they can tell you uh, more, how to say, striking things about Russia, Ukraine, um, maybe uh, can give you pieces that are missing in this puzzle. Thank you for inviting me again and uh, glad to be with you in the future. Thank great, you. great thing, great thing what you thank are you doing. For, thank you for helping us read between the lines. That was awesome. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for listening to Ethics in Action. For more on this podcast and on the Applied Ethics Center, check us out at umb.edu backslash ethics.